Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Venus, I'm going to out you as a smoker right now. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Because this is something that most people know about me. Like, I love caffeine and I love nicotine. Would you say that nicotine is your favorite poison? Unfortunately, yes. It is tied with caffeine. I can quit caffeine much, much easier than I can quit nicotine. Okay. I I was able to quit smoking cigarettes, thankfully, about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. But now I am on the vape train because I still need that sweet, sweet nicotine. (laughs) Don't start smoking, kids. Don't vape. It's not cool. No, for real. It sucks. I mean, I've never had a nicotine addiction, but it seems like real ball and chain type thing. It really is. I have quit for months several times and... I always go crawling back. (laughs) So don't start. Tell me what you know about nicotine as a poison. How dangerous do you think that it is? So I think that it's, I think that it's dangerous, but in my head, it would only be dangerous in really, really, really high levels. What do you Um, mean by that? I mean that if somebody sat down and they smoked an entire pack in a couple of hours instead Mm -hmm. of smoking a pack a day, or if somebody had no tolerance to nicotine, somebody like you who is not a smoker, and then if you smoked three cigarettes or hit a vape, like Mm -hmm. it might make you sick. So in my head, there's like a tolerance piece But that it's very much so if you way overdo it, that's what would make it dangerous. Oh, I mean, sure. For most things, I think if you have a tolerance, you'll be a little bit safer against those high doses. But I mean, how much do you think it would take to kill somebody with nicotine? I mean, throwing a random guess out there, I would say that it would take two packs of cigarettes in a short amount of time to kill somebody. Okay. Okay. Well... Considering how commonplace nicotine is for a lot of people, you might be surprised to know that the LD50 for nicotine that has been reported since some self-experiments in the 19th century is roughly 40 to 60 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. However, a 2014 study has suggested that based on fatal case studies, the LD50 for nicotine is closer to 6.5 to 13 milligrams per kilogram of body weight for humans. So why aren't we all dying? Because not a lot of it survives the combustion process, and so about only 0.05 to 3 milligrams is delivered. But an entire pack of cigarettes, if you were to smoke the whole thing at once, like you said, that could be fatal to a person. Damn. For comparison, one cigar has about 15 to 40 milligrams and delivers 0.2 to 1 milligram of nicotine. Nicotine gum is sold as 2 milligram or 5 milligram pieces, and delivers one to two milligrams. One gram of chewing tobacco has six to eight milligrams and delivers two to four. And then a 30 milliliter bottle of nicotine refill liquid for a vape pen Mm -hmm. has anywhere from no nicotine, which I find odd, to over 36 milligrams per mil and delivers greater than (gasps) 43.2 micrograms per 100 milliliters. Yikes. 
So it could be pretty dangerous. That sounds like it. Okay. <laughs> so are we just talking about cigarettes today, though? Or is nicotine a separate thing? Because in my head, they're the same? Mm -hmm. Question mark? That's fair, but... Cigarettes could have hundreds of ingredients depending on the brand and the type. So sure. for today, we're just going to focus on nicotine, which is one of the components. I would argue that it is probably one of the major components of cigarettes, mm -hmm. but we're not going to be focusing on cigarettes as a whole today. Okay. So nicotine itself. Got it. Mm -hmm. And so I know some of the effects of nicotine on the body, but for non-smokers out there, what are some of the effects or what are the effects of nicotine poisoning? Well, allow me to play some audio that explains the effects of nicotine poisoning. Ooh, okay. Do you have it pulled up? And then we can do like three, two, one, go, and we can both yeah. watch it. Yes. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one, go. Nick, how much do you smoke a day? Hey, what are you doing? According to the box, each one of those patches contains 21 milligrams of nicotine. That's like what? One pack? You know, our industry has been working hand in hand with Nick. Just listen, all right? It says here there are many adverse reactions from those things. Let's see, arrhythmia, constipation, dyspepsia, no well, my industry does 48 billion in revenue. Pharyngitis, sinusitis, dysmenorrhea. I don't even want to know what that means. Hey, look, I would guess you could start by, you know, asking for five million, working your way up from there. But I don't want any money, Nick. Well, what do you want? I mean, I'm all ears here. Such Fight Club vibes. I know. It's good. So is all of that true? Did the movie get it right? Yes. As far as the effects of the nicotine patches mm -hmm. and as far as the adverse effects of nicotine, they did get that right. The 21 milligrams per patch being a pack of cigarettes is actually, he was over-exaggerating. It's only how much you're absorbing, not how much is actually in it. Well, there is 21 milligrams in a patch. But if one cigarette contains 30 milligrams of nicotine, then one patch is roughly one cigarette. And you do absorb more nicotine through the patch than what survives the combustion process when you smoke. Oh. So the largest nicotine patch delivers 21 milligrams, and that's over the course of a day. You know, it's clearly mm -hmm. not immediate. Mm -hmm. And then upon the completion of a three-day use, 27 to 74% of the contents of the nicotine patch may remain. So... Mm. Even though it's 21 milligrams, you're getting less than that. You're getting significantly less than that, potentially. So a pack of cigarettes would be more than that. You'd have to smoke mm. a lot more. I, I don't know how many cigarettes are in a pack. 20. Jesus Christ. That's a lot yeah. of cigarettes. So yeah. yeah, that part isn't true. But, I mean, with how many they're putting on him, if he doesn't get them off quickly, I don't remember how the scene ends with him. I don't know if they hog tie him and then leave him to absorb all of that. Yeah, he's not looking real hot. He'll be fine if he gets them off of him, but I mean, patches in general are dangerous is kind of an early digression for this episode because, I mean, I don't know if you've known anybody who's had to use like a fentanyl patch or anything, but those can be super dangerous. When I've had some of my porphyria attacks, I've been on the scopolamine patches for mm. nausea. They're for like seasickness or car sickness mm -hmm. but I personally didn't like that because it helps shortly but you're supposed to be able to wear it for three days yeah and it's not helping yeah. it is not helping even at the end of day one so it's hard with those transdermal patches in yeah. my opinion for it to be a consistent 
It is hard for it to be consistent, but it's also because it is such a large amount that's supposed to be spread over three days, they can be really dangerous if you put too many on at once. A lot of people put multiple fentanyl patches on and then die. I'm sure it could happen with nicotine patches where you could get nicotine poisoning very quickly because one of the common routes of nicotine poisoning that we'll talk about later is transdermal. It's really common. I mean, my mom, who's been struggling to quit smoking for years now, she has a hard time with the patches and they make her sick. And a lot of that is making sense now. For her, she's like, why am I going to keep doing this if it's going to make me feel even shittier than if I were just going to smoke? Right. So they did get it right with the effects that they mentioned, and he was talking over it a bit, trying to get himself out of a hostage situation. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Uh, I will say that non-fatal doses of nicotine can cause nausea, vomiting, dizziness, pinpoint pupils, tachycardia, hypertension, sweating, and salivation. And I know that's a long list, but I named them all because I want you to guess what kind of drug nicotine is based on these symptoms. It's something that... You and the listeners, if they've listened to all of our episodes so far, including Patreon exclusives, should be able to make a pretty good guess at. It sounds a lot like arsenic. With the nausea and the vomiting and the issues with the heart, and it sounds like arsenic. Did I do it? How about if I just pull out salivation, gastrointestinal distress, and amesis? Then what do you think it is? Sodium chloride. No. No. Damn it. I'm blowing it, guys. (laughs) So... It's an anticholinergic. Oh. Yeah, like the pesticides that we've talked about. And okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well that's, these all suck. Poisons suck. Nicotine can also cause an increase of your pulse rate, an increase of free fatty acids, which can impair the aortic elastic function of your blood vessels. It causes hyperglycemia and increases catecholamines in the blood, which, again, they increase heart rate, blood pressure, breathing. They also increase muscle strength and alertness, and so I think that's part of the draw of cigarettes. Once you get past that initial nausea and dizziness that you feel after the first cigarette and you become addicted, I think you start to feel that mental alertness, is what I've heard. No, that's that's very valid. And are the catecholamines the fight-or-flight hormones? Yeah, yeah. So examples of catecholamines include dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. So yeah, this is totally fight or flight. Yeah, and so when you have those responses, you are more alert. When you Mm -hmm. go into that fight or flight mode, part of the point is I'm going to be alert enough to fight. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then once you have a fatal amount, that can cause prostration, convulsions, respiratory paralysis, cyanosis, so you start to turn blue at the lips, Mm. labored breathing, and you could die within a few minutes to an hour of a fatal ingestion. And then long-term effects, uh, I mean, there's still studies about how cigarettes cause cancer and all of that, but it does seem like nicotine itself can be carcinogenic. It can negatively impact the heart, reproductive system, lung, and kidney, and human case studies and animal studies have shown cancer of the GI system, the lungs, the pancreas, and the breast. That's a lot of different things. I mean, one thing that I notice just from these overview of symptoms, the times that I've been able to quit, Mm -hmm. my blood circulation is way better. Mm -hmm. I have witch hands and witch feet. They're constantly cold, even even without 
smoking, but the times that I was not smoking, it was not as severe. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I notice quickly in the times that I have quit. Yeah, because it lowers the amount of blood to your skin and your intestines. And I think it lowers the amount of blood that goes to your heart even, but it increases blood flow to skeletal muscles and it increases blood flow to other major organs, so the intestines and things like that. But it's not Mm -hmm. going to the brain. It's not going where it's supposed to go, you know. We kind of talked about, yes, you could die from too many nicotine patches. Mm -hmm. What about cigarettes? Could somebody overdose on cigarettes? Certainly. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be difficult because you'd have to smoke a lot in a very short period of time. So I think you'd have to maybe put the entire pack in your mouth and just like real deep, long inhale the whole Mm -hmm. thing. But Mm -hmm. yeah, you could definitely make yourself sick and you could die if you did it in the short window and then not physically be unable to smoke anymore in order to continue poisoning yourself further. I had friends in high school who smoked cigarettes and a couple of them, when their parents found out... Their way of punishing them, which is not uncommon, because I've heard it from numerous people, is sit down, Billy, Mm -hmm. and smoke this whole pack of cigarettes. I was actually thinking that, because I I never had any friends like that, but there was that King of the Hill episode where he makes Bobby smoke the whole pack. Yeah. Perfect. And I was like, I'm sure some idiot has done that. And it's like, it's not teaching your kid anything you're just really putting your child at harm yeah and all of my friends who went through that they still smoke yeah as far as I knew you know years later yeah so it didn't work and it just probably made them incredibly sick yeah and like their parents a lot less (laughs) yeah yeah what are the ways that it acts on the body that makes these symptoms happen Nicotine mimics the effect of acetylcholine release by binding to receptors that we actually call nicotinic receptors. Huh. Yeah. And so they're not solely for nicotine. It just affects acetylcholine. But it is interesting that we have these receptors in our body that maybe early on we were like, hey, look, this is where nicotine binds because everybody smoked during the early stages of scientific discovery. Literally everybody. But yeah, so it's just a type of acetylcholine receptor. There's nicotinic and muscarinic. And these ones, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors are in the brain, the spinal cord, the autonomic ganglia, neuromuscular junctions, and chemoreceptors of various points of the body. And so it just kind of acts on various points of the whole body. And I think this is important to remember when we start talking about addiction is that it acts in multiple places in the brain and multiple places in the body. Right. Not just one that we think of. Is that part of why it's so difficult to successfully quit? I think part of it is that we do have these receptors that seem very just lock and key for nicotine. And that's why they're nicotinic receptors is that our body just receives them so well, but there's this huge influx of dopamine that's released when that nicotine locks into the nicotinic receptor. Mm -hmm. So these receptors have excitatory and inhibitory effects, as you see with various withdrawal symptoms. Changes brought on by chronic nicotine agonists, like nicotine cigarettes, show an upregulation of various types of neurotransmitters. Mm. So it's important to know that Dopamine specifically is released in the nucleus accumbens of the brain, and this is actually the reward center of our brain, that Mm. when we have an action and we're rewarded, our biologic tendencies are to say, let's do that again because that worked out well. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so that's why they're so addictive is because it hits on that exact part of the brain that says, yes, keep doing this. Yeah, hi, I liked that and we'd like more, please. Exactly, exactly. And then all the other places that it acts on, so it acts on norepinephrine, acetylcholine, GABA, serotonin, glutamate, endorphins. And these are all associated with cognitive and mood enhancement. You feel mentally alert. You feel happy because you've released dopamine. But you also have appetite suppression and anxiety reduction because of all of the different chemicals that are being either inhibited or they're being told to release because of this receptor being locked into. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. What I found interesting is that apparently the effects are dose-dependent. It's biphasic, meaning at some levels it acts one way, and at higher levels it acts another way. Lower doses of nicotine produce stimulation of the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. Can we talk about the difference between the two systems? So the parasympathetic nervous system increases respiration and heart rate. This is the fight or flight. This is when you're engaged in that way. Everything is heightened and you're more alert and your heart rate increases and you have anxiety because it's the 21st century. You're ready for battle. Exactly. The sympathetic nervous system is where you are at a baseline where you're not ready to Mm. fly and you're not ready to fight. And that's what you return to once you're Got parasympathetic it. nervous system is not activated anymore. So it reacts on both of those in different ways, while higher doses of nicotine just block the sympathetic nervous system. And so you're just very alert. And I think that that is shown in the increased heart rate, seizures, and they aren't entirely sure. Even my studies that they've conducted, they can't entirely pinpoint where the seizure activity comes from, but you are mm. capable of seizures. And it makes sense if we think about everything else we've talked about with acetylcholine, where it's just fire, 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 because there's nothing to stop it. Right. That to me makes sense, but they don't know the exact mechanism for seizures. But so, yeah, it's biphasic. It acts on both the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And so you feel chill out and you're like not anxious. And then you have too much nicotine and you're very anxious, which to me makes sense because I imagine most of the time when you feel poisoned by a central nervous system stimulant, you're going to be anxious. And to speak on my personal experience with my journey with nicotine it's very much so there's a very slim window of Mm -hmm. i'm having a stressful moment at work or in life whatever i'm gonna go have a cigarette it's one of our favorite coping mechanisms and uses for smoking and that's why so many people who quit get back on it when they have a stressor happen Mm -hmm. but what happens to me personally is there's this small window of going okay, I'm on my smoke break and I feel great and I'm better to where, oh, now I'm even more anxious and jittery. Mm -hmm. That's how it feels on my body when I do it. And so it's that very slim window of, okay, I'm feeling calm. Oh, no, just kidding. We're going to go off the rails anxious now. Yeah, because the biphasic action, lower doses have the catecholamine release and then larger doses inhibit the release. And so I think that's what you're feeling. Don't start smoking. Don't start smoking. And, you know, the weird thing is, too, I have a couple books that I just have at home that I was looking up the tobacco plant and things like that to get information. Mm -hmm. And they were all just written very judgmentally, very Mm -hmm. harshly judgmental of people who smoke. And, like, don't smoke. You're going to get addicted and it's not good. But I'm also not going to, like, wag my finger at you or anything. That's not going to help anybody. Just don't do it. And if you do do it, I'm sorry. I hope you can stop. Yeah, none of my friends smoke anymore. I run with a different crowd now. And so I there's like a level of shame that I have 
as a former smoker and somebody who still consumes nicotine because it's just not cool and it's not cool it's just one of those things that like i understand that socially we're coming from a different place because when i was a kid you could smoke inside you could yeah smoke at chuck e cheese even you know and it's yeah. like things have changed and i think for the better because one of the older books that I was using, if anybody wants to join Patreon so that I can afford better books that have been written like after 1984, <laughs> it was saying that basically nicotine exposure in the 1980s was just kind of universal because everybody smoked. You could smoke mm -hmm. inside. You couldn't smoke on planes anymore, but we were like just past that phase of human history, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody, I think, or at least most everybody has some sort of addiction into pinpoint smokers and be like, how fucking dare you? Shame, shame, shame. Shame. I don't yeah. think that's helping anybody. I don't really want people smoking inside anymore. I th do think that our lives have a significantly better quality to them, that we're not doing that, and we don't have just this universal exposure to nicotine. But also, that's a personal struggle, and <laughs> I don't well, know. It, it is, and there are things that are better, even as a former smoker and current nicotine consumer. <laughs> In high school, we would go to Village Inn, and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee because mm -hmm. that's what we could do and you could smoke inside. Mm -hmm. And now I wouldn't go to a restaurant to mm -hmm. eat if you could smoke inside. It's yeah. just not a good time. Even somebody as a smoker, like there are things that are better like, <laughs> without having it around. We digress. Yes, this is all very interesting, but Quiet. we have been recording for some minutes now and we haven't gone into true crime. That's this, a great point. This is not a put-you-to-sleep toxicology podcast. This is a very exciting toxicology true crime podcast. <laughs> that is right, my friend. So I'm interested to know where is the true crime connection? It's more than the movie Thank You for Smoking. It is. I'm ready. Paul and Linda Curry, as they would come to be known, her name was Linda Kincaid in 1991 when they began dating. They both worked at the Southern California Edison, which is inside of the San Onofre nuclear power plant. She had worked there for 27 years, and Paul was hired there as an engineer in 1989. He was 32, and she was 45. She had been previously married, and she was one of those people who was committed to her job, and she just wanted to do the best that she could do. She was a normal person. I, I want to describe her the way that I read her being described by her friends, which is that she was motivated and she wanted to work her way up. But I mean, she was just a normal person. She wanted a good job and she wanted to be loved. And so she meets Paul and Paul was apparently very intelligent. He had previously won on Jeopardy. He was mm -hmm. a member of Mensa and he was very smart, but also very arrogant, according to both his and her friends. Unfortunately common with a lot of intelligent people. Unfortunately. And one of Linda's friends actually recalled Paul saying of his chemistry degree just shortly after I think the two had been married that he could go into the garage and get something to kill someone and it would never be detected. She mostly was just put off by the arrogance of this statement, but she didn't really think about him as being a murderer. And like, I've heard things like this, having gone through chemistry programs with people sure. who were like, I could so easily make meth or I could so easily kill somebody. And like... Part of it is a joke, you know, like me as being interested in toxins, like, sure, I know ways you could kill people, but... Sure, but it's like, it's like weird flex, but okay. Exactly. Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> like, that's how it comes up to me, at least. Yes. But... Linda, apparently, 
liked Paul a lot for his intelligence, like almost solely for his intelligence. Mm -hmm. He could play her baby grand piano. He was a great cook. He apparently was just able to pick up on skill sets very quickly. And she liked that a lot. It seems so true, Crimey, to mention just every single detail of their lives. And like, I don't want to like air too much dirty laundry, but they just didn't seem to have much of a relationship that I read about and that their friends reported on later beyond her just liking him for his intelligence and him liking her for her money because she was already established and was a little bit older and she had a nice house Mm. and she had nice jewelry and clothes and he had the intelligence and that's what they each brought to the relationship and there wasn't a whole lot beyond that. There was no substance, things that were actually keeping them together. Yeah, so they got married on September 12th, 1992 And then Linda found out that Paul was supporting two ex-wives and three children that Linda didn't know about. Um, excuse me? That's important information. Yeah, it's important information (laughs) in terms of, like, honesty in a relationship, but it was also starting to cause them immediate money problems upon them being married. Paul also asked Linda to buy a $1 million life insurance policy and make Paul the beneficiary, and this was only after a month of them being married. Red flag. This is according to one of Linda's friends, so maybe it wasn't quite a month and she just remembers it as being a month, Mm -hmm. but still, like, red flag. And Linda didn't get the policy, much to her credit, but she already had several life insurance policies worth almost a million dollars, and Paul was the beneficiary on all of them. Do we know if Paul knew about these? I think he did. Okay. Yeah, I think he did. And then at six months of marriage... Linda asked a friend and co-worker who was looking for a place to move in with them. And it wasn't just out of the kindness of her heart, you're looking for a new place. She was worried that Paul was doing other sketchy things behind her back. And so she wanted the friend to move in and kind of watch Paul and make mm. sure that he wasn't doing more behind her back than what she already found out with the ex-wives and the kids. Right. And so the friend moves in and the friend says that Paul was absolutely adoring and trustworthy based on what she saw that he just totally doted on Linda so she was like I don't think you have anything to worry about he loves you even other friends I guess who didn't like Paul very much because he was arrogant and weird they said that he treated her very well the entire time he treated her very well okay in July of 1993 Linda became so violently ill that she required hospitalization she had nausea vomiting and diarrhea and was given IV for hydration But her attending nurse noticed that the IV bag was cloudy for some reason. So she removed the bag, reported the incident, and then the bag was sent to be tested. And poisoning had already been suspected based on Linda's symptoms. And her arriving in the hospital out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. She was in the Mm -hmm. hospital for 21 days, during which she had a stroke and nearly died. And then eventually that test on the IV bag revealed that there had been lidocaine in the bag. And lidocaine, if I remember correctly, is, and and I'm not sure I'm going to use the right word, but it numbs pain, but it's not an anesthetic. It's a local anesthetic. That's the word. Okay. It can be used intravenously, especially if you have some sort of arrhythmia. It can be used to treat arrhythmias. It can be used as an anesthetic with supervision, but it's very, very easy for it to become systemically toxic. And so why would somebody put lidocaine in her IV? If somebody was intending to poison her, it can lead to seizures, arrhythmias, and cardiovascular collapse. And you Mm. only need about a gram of lidocaine, so about a quarter teaspoon of sugar, intravenously to cause heart failure. From what I remember, 
lidocaine was hard to get in the 90s because my grandma had lidocaine patches Mm -hmm. and they were prescription only. Mm -hmm. And now I had a doctor write a prescription for some for me and they told me, no, we're not going to fill the prescription because you can just buy it over the counter. Yeah, it was hard for me to go back and see what was available during the 90s. But from what I could find, it seemed like most things were like creams and they were very low percentage creams. There were the creams and Mm -hmm. then the patches. And then I also remember that my mom had some dental work done Mm -hmm. and it was very bad. And they gave her a little, it was a liquid and it was very jelly almost. It wasn't very thin. Is that the type of lidocaine that they probably put in her IV? See, that's what I was thinking because what I could find was that there's a lot of like veterinary lidocaine. And so Mm. maybe he had some leftover. He is, of, of course, I'm assuming Paul. Everybody already was assuming Paul at this point. Right. We were all on that page. No surprise. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) He probably either had dental work and had that similar kind of gel Mm -hmm. because a cream or sunblock or a gel or a patch, anything that is like that. I don't know how you would get that into the IV bag to begin with. So it must have been something like that. And that was available for dental work, like you said, but Mm -hmm. also for a lot of veterinary medicine, which it would be easy for him to probably either buy over the counter or like say that he had a dog but didn't have a dog. So that's what I'm assuming. Okay. And the good thing about that is as far as I could tell, these creams and these gels and all of that are like 1% to 5% lidocaine. So they're luckily not a whole lot of lidocaine and they were being diluted by the IV bag. But it's only good for Linda because it's like it wasn't a lot at once and the nurse caught it. But obviously poisoning was intended and it could have been really, really bad very, very quickly if that nurse hadn't been so vigilant. Paul was immediately suspected. He was immediately suspected by the nurses and the investigation by the hospital. And police even interviewed Linda about Paul's behavior while she was in the hospital on August 11th, 1993. And these recorded interviews are available online. I just saw the transcription because my internet would not load the videos, but they are (laughs) available if anybody wants to go see those. Okay. And Linda admitted that Paul was the only one who might want to kill her because of their money problems. But she also said that she didn't think he would do that because he was just so doting on her. But the thing that they keep coming back to is that she did offer him up as the one person who had motive. You know, it's also like if you think that your husband wants to kill you and he's the only person who might kill you. Yeah, it's time to leave, my friend. It just sucks because it seems like her friends and again, speculation. We don't have Linda saying anything about it now, but it seems like she just wanted so badly to be loved and wanted so badly to like have these things in her life that she was. I don't know, maybe in denial about what was going on. And like the the smart part of this woman's brain was saying she knew he was sneaky and dishonest and interested in her money, but he takes really good care of me and I'm already 45 and I don't want to have to go find somebody else, you know? We've all been there. We mm-hmm. have all stayed in a relationship that our heart of hearts and our guts told us, yeah. you don't want to be here anymore. But then the love drug comes in. And we go, oh, <laughs> but I like being loved. I get it. At least she was open and honest with the police, though, about it. Yep, and she admitted to them that after they got married, he wanted her to change all of the bank accounts in her name to his name, change all the credit cards to his name. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all these red flags, and she seems like she was a very intelligent woman in math numbers logic, but emotionally, I think that he took advantage of that. 
Yeah, it sounds like it. So she gets out of the hospital and then returns to the hospital in December of 1993 with the same mystery illness. Was then the summer the first time? The summer was in the first time. She gets out in August. She returns in December. And Paul takes her to a different hospital than the first time. Suspect. A little bit. I mean, I am aware that we live between a couple major hospitals, and it could be more convenient to go to this one rather than that one. But still, a little sus. Yeah, it is, especially if it's the same symptoms that they're having. Wouldn't you want... People who are familiar with it. Yeah. Okay. But anyway. Anyway. Her IV was tampered with again. And maybe that's why he took her to a different hospital so they wouldn't catch it this time. But they did. And they immediately suspected him. And a sign was actually put on Linda's door stating, Mr. Curry or husband is not allowed unaccompanied into the hospital room. Well, round of applause for that treatment team. I know. Police were, again, interviewing Linda while she was in the hospital, and she insisted that although there were money problems, Paul was a wonderful man, and he'd always been good to her, and then Paul was interviewed. So they were on top of it. And that's part of the tragedy of this, is that people were on top of it as soon as it happened, and still. So one of Linda's friends named Mary recalled being in the Curry house while Linda was in the hospital. She was probably going to, like, feed a cat, get clothes Mm -hmm. for Linda or something. And she noticed that there were all these multiple life insurance policies sitting out on dressers, which is kind of weird. Like, those go in a box or a folder somewhere, right? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, and she told Linda that she was worried Paul was going to try to kill her after Linda got out of the hospital again. She was like, this is suspicious. And Linda, on her part, after she got out of the hospital, she told her sister Patricia that if she ever got sick again, she didn't want Paul coming near her in the hospital. (sighs) I know, I know. It's like, get out of there. I know, I know. It's just me screaming at the TV Lifetime movie, get out! Get out! The killer is in the house! You're in bed next to them! I know, I know. Okay, so the following summer, June 9th, 1994, that friend Mary gets an email from Paul saying that Linda felt worse than ever. We didn't have text back then, but, like, call her, maybe? It's weird that he sent an email. That's not super urgent. Uh, An email's not urgent, and back in 94, not everybody had email Mm -hmm. access 24 hours a day. Yeah, you might have to go to the library or something. Well, yeah, or at work, but it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. The evening of June 9th, around midnight, Paul heard the cat... And he awoke because of the sounds the cat was making. And Linda didn't wake up, and he realized that she was barely breathing. So he called 911. He gave her CPR before the paramedics arrived, but she had no heartbeat. When she got to the hospital in the early hours of June 10th, 1994, she died. She was 50 Mm. years old at this time. Afterwards, friends of Paul say he was very emotional about Linda's death and was acting quote-unquote appropriately, which there's no appropriate way to act when somebody dies, but... We all show grief differently. At the autopsy, the medical examiner found a strange mark behind Linda's right ear that could have been left by a syringe. And toxicology reports at the time revealed high levels of nicotine and cadmium. Linda wasn't a smoker. That was going to be my next question. Not a smoker. And the toxicology also revealed Ambien in her system, which is the sleep drug that people get up and they eat an entire bag of Fritos. So it's it's an intense sleep drug. It's a wild ride. Her death was declared a homicide, but Paul could not immediately be charged because there was no real proof to link him. It was all kind of circumstantial. They had no syringe. They had no source of nicotine, so he couldn't be charged. And the case eventually became a cold case. Paul got 
almost everything he was going for out of some apparent foresight because Linda was clearly not stupid to what was going on. She mm-hmm. just wasn't leaving. She left half of her estate to her sister. She left $10,000 each to 10 close friends. She had a lot in her estate. No, that's but that's very generous of her. And Paul got her house and close to half a million dollars. He bought himself a new Cadillac. Of course he did. And when interviewed by investigators five months after Linda's death, he denied ever having cashed out on her life insurance policies. After Linda's death, Paul was transferred from his job at the power plant, and during a routine security check, it was revealed that he was not an engineer, which is what he had been hired to do at the power plant, and he didn't even have a college degree. What? So that whole bit about him being like, I have a chemistry degree and I could kill you with anything, he didn't even have a college degree. Cute. He resigned before he could be fired because it was one of those situations between two old white guys where they were like, we know what's up and you can either resign or we can fire you. And he chose to resign. He left California for Vegas. He allowed the house that he got from Linda's death to be foreclosed on. And then he became a used car salesman. Well, of course he did. (laughs) Yes. And he should have stayed there because he has an inside made of cockroaches and vinegar, but he went on to become a building inspector. Yeah, that's scary. I know, right? So, while Linda's case was being examined as a cold case, it was found that Paul filed not only the life insurance claims, but he also said that some jewelry had been stolen after her death, and so he reported on the stolen jewelry, which is, like, suspect to begin with. But what he said was stolen was Linda's 18-carat woman's gold Rolex and some other jewelry, and he got $9,000 for it. But he had given the sister, Patricia, the watch... And then, days later, he made the claim that it was stolen. This guy's a snake. The cold case was being studied by Sergeant Yvonne Schull of the Orange County Sheriff's Department beginning in 2002. In 2006, she finally had enough evidence to hand it over to the Orange County prosecutor named Abraham Batia. She had 25 binders worth of information. You go, Yvonne. I know, I know. So they called in a nicotine expert named Dr. Neil Benowitz, and he said death with the level of nicotine that he found administered intravenously could have occurred within 20 minutes to two hours. Wow. During which Paul had admitted that he was the only one with access to Linda because they'd been home for six hours alone prior to him finding her not breathing. Right, because it was in the middle of the night that this happened. Yeah. Like, she's not out at a movie hanging out with friends. Exactly. In the middle of the night. Yeah. Mm, okay. Exactly. I just want to reiterate some numbers here. Mm. A pack okay. of cigarettes has roughly 300 milligrams of nicotine, depending on the brand. And that is, of course, way above the lethal level for a person. If someone were to just take every cigarette from a pack and soak it in rubbing alcohol... The nicotine can be extracted and then injected. And the level of nicotine found in Linda's body during this second analysis done by Dr. Neil Benowitz was 1,200 nanograms per mil of nicotine. So the 2014 study that I found said that a fatal nicotine blood concentration is about 2 milligrams per liter. And Linda had... 1,120 nanograms per mil, which is equal to 1.12 milligrams per liter. So about half of that fatal nicotine concentration. But still, that's based on case studies of people who actually fatally died from smoking cigarettes. And Linda was a non-smoker. Holy shit. So that all needs to be taken into account. This is a lot of nicotine for somebody who was a non-smoker. Right. They have zero tolerance. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Their body doesn't know how to metabolize it. Why didn't they test her blood earlier on? They did test her blood earlier on. I couldn't find a number for the amount of nicotine in her blood, but they did find that it was a high number. I just don't know. I did read that they had to send it out to a separate facility, so it may have been that they were just testing for the presence and they weren't necessarily quantifying it. Mm. It just happened that when they were going through and they really wanted to cross all their T's and dot all their I's to reopen this cold case and try to get a conviction, they put a number on it. Especially if they're consulting with a nicotine expert. Mm -hmm. This guy's like the guy. By 2010, Paul was living in Salina, Kansas, where he had remarried and he had another kid. And investigators decided to pose as Kansas investigators to continue questioning Paul into the final corner to really be like... We have these questions. They thought that if they came in and said they were from Orange County, he would probably flee. And Mm. so they just wanted to say, like, hey, we're from Kansas, and for some reason we have questions about this cold case involving one of your former wives. So they question him into a corner. They get him to admit that he and Linda had been alone together for six hours, so they put him in Mm. that window, and so Mm -hmm. he was finally arrested. And this was 16 years after her murder. Wow. Well, I mean, at least justice prevailed at some point. They still didn't have a syringe, and so they still had that issue that was, you know, the issue the first time that they suspected him. But he was arrested. It was progress. His defense was saying that there was no poison found in the IV bags, which is kind of a weird thing to say because lidocaine is definitely a poison. Not only that, there were no IV bags involved before she went to the hospital, bro. Yeah. My dude, that doesn't make any sense. A lot of what they said didn't make sense. I actually found his defense to be really offensive. Mm -hmm. And I get that, like, the lawyer was just trying to do her job, air quotes, and she was trying to find a way to protect this person who has the right to an attorney and all that. But I just found it very offensive. Mm -hmm. They said that there weren't any fingerprints found, and I think that was on the IV bags, which, like you said, that's a secondary poisoning. That's not what we're talking about. Why are we talking about IV bags? But what they did bring up was that Linda had a long history of stomach problems, Epstein-Barr, and chronic fatigue. And they suggested, this is what I found really offensive, that nicotine got into her system because she did an experimental nicotine enema on herself. And they said this because she had at some point tried Chinese herbs for some of the stomach problems that she had. I feel like this is a character assassination and you're trying to say, look how crazy this sick woman was. And it's like, I'm pretty sure she didn't give herself a nicotine enema. That is something that is done for some gastrointestinal stuff, but I don't think that a woman in 1994 with limited access to recent medical publications regarding weird things like nicotine enemas, I very much so doubt that she did that to herself. And it doesn't explain the Ambien in her system. Right. Which, do we know if she had a prescription for the Ambien or not? I kind of feel like she didn't, but it's also like... Ambien acts so quickly, could she have gotten all this nicotine into her system while, I mean, yeah, no. you can wake up and do weird things, but I have never heard of somebody waking up on Ambien and giving themselves an enema. Yeah, no, that's not, no. There are things that you normally do. Or there are things that your hind brain is like, I want to feel good, so I'm going to eat right. a bag of Fritos. Right, but it's not, I'm going to give myself an enema. And even if she was, like, she took the Ambien, like, she wouldn't be able to do things that. No. Okay. So one of the key witnesses was one of Paul's ex-wives named Leslie, who testified that she was also frequently sick during her marriage to Paul, and that Paul had also suggested that they sign up for life insurance policies. 
Now, Leslie applied, but her life insurance policy was denied, and shortly after it was denied, the couple split. And then her health problems stopped. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. Red flags. So many red flags. Oh, my god! So, in 2010, when he was arrested, he was charged with first-degree murder for financial gain, and that carries a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole, and he was also charged for insurance fraud because of the Rolex. Good. In 2014, he was found guilty and sentenced to life at a California state prison. Love it. Since then, Curry has appealed his conviction on the basis that he was denied his right to due process because he was in jail for four years, but this was rejected, and so he still remains in prison for life. Rest in peace, Linda. I hope that her family can take solace in that justice was eventually served. Her friends, for the most part, seem to. I mean, they're sad that it took 20 years, but they're glad that he wasn't just out there doing whatever he wanted to do when Linda was dead, you know? Right. Wow, that's wild. I I had never heard of a case in all of the true crime stories and shows and documentaries of which I've never heard of one with nicotine. Well, you should be prepared because it's not the only one I found. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is not the first time that nicotine has been used for a crime. Nicotine was the second most commonly used toxin for suicidal poisonings in Hungary in 1967. And both accidental and intentional nicotine poisonings are currently on the rise with the popularity of electronic cigarettes and vape pens. Because we've already talked about how concentrated nicotine is and how easily accessible it is. Like you said, it can go from zero nicotine to these crazy high nicotine numbers. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're trans transitioning like I did off of cigarettes to a vape pen it's like I don't know what I'm doing I know some people who they have like the fancy pen where they can adjust the amount of nicotine and so I guess theoretically you could be like I'm gonna try to get myself off cigarettes so I'm gonna start here and then go down when I tried we were getting like a medium dose of nicotine and then we're trying to go lower and lower Mm -hmm. but even still with a lot of the vape juices that they sell at these stores, they're not Mm -hmm. regulated in a way that one would hope. That's not good. Well, in 2003, 92 people were poisoned after ingesting ground beef intentionally contaminated with a nicotine-based pesticide by a supermarket worker in Michigan. What? (laughs) Yeah. So on January 3rd, 2003, the Michigan Department of Agriculture's Food and Dairy Division and the U.S. Department of Agriculture were notified by a supermarket of a planned recall of approximately 1,700 pounds of ground beef because of customer complaints of illness. On January 10th, the supermarket notified the Michigan Department of Ag that their laboratory had determined the contaminant in the ground beef was nicotine. Persons who ate ground beef product purchased from the supermarket on either December 31st, 2002 or January 1st, 2003 had symptoms of nicotine poisoning occurring within two hours of eating the product. That's fast. Nicotine happens really fast, and that was one of the things that Linda's case hinged on, was that they didn't seem to know how quickly the nicotine would affect her, and then they determined that it could have happened within, like, 20 minutes to an hour. That's a very narrow window of time, and one person had access to her then. Right. No, it makes sense. On January 10th, same day, company officials notified the Michigan Department of Ag and the U.S. Department of Ag that nicotine had been presumptively identified in the ground beef samples. And then a week later, they reported that 
It was specifically approximately 300 milligrams per kilogram nicotine in submitted samples. If you were making like a quarter pounder type burger out of this meat, mm -hmm. it would result in a patty with 33 milligrams of nicotine. And once again, the LD50 is between 6.5 to 13 milligrams per kilogram of body weight for adults and somewhere around 10 milligrams for children. That's wild. So it's, hold on, if it was six to what? 6.5 to 13. And then it would be only 10 for children? It wouldn't be lower? The 6.5 that I found is adjusted based on oh. those case studies, and the mm -hmm. 10 is still what we're assuming it is for children, because you can't really do fatal human studies of nicotine in children. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So it's probably significantly less than 10. Either way, like... Either way, there's enough in that burger to kill you. Exactly. It's honestly surprising no one died. One person did lose heartbeat. He got to the hospital and he lost heartbeat and he had to be brought back, but luckily nobody died. That was going to be my next question. They were sick, but luckily nobody died. Wow. Contamination of the product was believed to have occurred at a single store rather than at the meat processing plant. And at this store, no nicotine-containing pesticides were reportedly used or sold in the store where the recalled product was sold. And so they're just getting very suspicious. They're saying it's one of our stores in particular. It's probably employees who are very upset at this store, and it couldn't have been an accident because there's no... It's not like you dropped a pack of cigarettes in on accident, you know? And there's right. no nicotine pesticides at the store. So this was really very intentional. On February 12th, a grand jury returned an indictment for the arrest of a person accused of poisoning 200 pounds of meat. It wasn't the full 1,700 mm. pounds, but it was just like they issued the recall and 1,700 were brought back. Just in case. He poisoned 200 pounds of meat with an insecticide called Black Leaf 40, which has the main ingredient of nicotine, and it has a lot of nicotine. The EPA actually canceled Black Leaf 40 in 1992 because of its toxicity, because it contained 40% nicotine, and most nicotine contained products have no more than 14% nicotine. Ugh. So it had a lot of nicotine and he must have just been holding on to this because this case happened in 2003. Right. The, that's insane. This is another today I learned <laughs> that nicotine is used as a pesticide. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was pretty early on used as a pesticide because they realized that aphids would die if you sprayed them with soap and nicotine. But really they realized that you could just spray aphids with a soap mixture and you don't need the nicotine. <laughs> Really early on, it was they realized that we could use it as a pesticide, and they don't do that anymore. Use of nicotine as an insecticide isn't widespread in the United States. There are some countries that still use it. You can purchase it online. We did switch to neonicotinic pesticides, but those are the ones that are largely under fire for the deaths of honeybees. Oh. Yeah, it was used as a pesticide, but not so much anymore. Interesting. Huh. So... How do they test for nicotine poisoning? It's an interesting question because it's so easy now and it didn't always used to be so easy. So early on after the Marsh test and after we were like, hey, we can determine if people were poisoned to death. This right. is amazing. We still had a hard time finding a lot of drugs. And most of the drugs that we're familiar with today are alkaline drugs. They have a basic pH. And it used to be immediately following the Marsh test and all of that, that it was really hard to test for alkaline drugs. And so you could find acidic drugs fairly easy, is my impression, but alkaline drugs were a lot harder, and nicotine is an alkaline drug. The first test for nicotine to pull alkaline drugs out of tissue and things like that was in 1851, following probably the first case of homicide that can be directly attributed to nicotine, and this was in Belgium in 1850. 
Oh, wow. So we're going way, way back. Okay, let's let's go. An amateur chemist and perfumer known as Comte Hippolyte de Bocam of Belgium and his wife, the Countess Lydia de Bocam of Belgium, were both deeply in debt from their lavish lifestyle and their apparent lack of any income, aside from what her father gave her because he was an apothecary. And they actually thought that they were going to inherit all of the Countess's father's money upon his death. But upon his death, the father's fortune was given to the Countess's brother, Gustave. They were like, okay, no problem. Gustave is sick a lot, so we just have to wait a little bit longer, which is like a weird outlook to have, but it's not murderous. It's just selfish and weird. Yeah. But then the brother, Gustave, decided to get married. And so his fortune, which was inherited from his father, would now go to his new wife. And the de Bocams wouldn't see a single cent Mm. of it. And so then they devised a plan to kill Gustave. Comte de began collecting tobacco leaves in the summer of 1850 and storing them in a barn, which he told the gardeners at the Belgian estate were for perfume. And by the fall of 1850, he had extracted two large vials worth of pure nicotine, which is a lot of nicotine. Yeah. He experimented with the poison on cats and birds around the estate until he and the Countess decided it was time to kill Gustave. So they invited the 32-year-old Gustave to an intimate dinner on November 20th, 1850. And this was unusual and probably raised some red flags for him because Comte and the Countess never cooked or served themselves usually, but chose this particular night to prepare and serve (laughs) the meal themselves. Yeah, that's a little suspect. And the servants, who were told to go away and not be a part of this, would later testify to hearing a call for help and then the thump of a body hitting the floor. And although the de Bocams claimed that Gustave died of a sudden stroke during dinner, the servants noticed that his face was bruised and cut and had clear signs of caustic burning, which is important because pure nicotine is caustic. And, and caustic meaning that it's like an acid? It's the opposite of an acid. So acid okay. is corrosive and bases are caustic. Got it. Okay. In fact, actually, nerdy science moment, that feeling you get when you rub soap and it's kind of smooth almost Mm -hmm. that's not the soap you're feeling that's your skin interacting with the basicity of this the soap oh interesting the comte and the countess attempted to cover their tracks by pouring vinegar down gustave's throat washing his body in vinegar scraping the floor and washing his clothes except for his shirt which is burnt and all of this of course looked really suspicious don't be suspicious. <laughs> Don't be suspicious. Yeah. They were but being super suspicious. Very, very suspicious. But this was at a time when basic compounds couldn't be detected in a body. And there had been a morphine case a few years prior to this where a French prosecutor said, Henceforth, let us tell would-be poisoners, use plant poisons. Fear nothing. Your crime will go unpunished. There is no physical evidence for it cannot be found. And in 1847, a case was dropped of a man attempting to murder his wife with nicotine because there wasn't enough proof of criminal intent. He put some snuff in her ale, and since it was a stimulant and it was kind of like a gift to receive nicotine sometimes, they were able to argue like, well, what if he was just trying to be nice and give her a little pep? They didn't have testing to prove like, no, he gave her a lot of nicotine. He gave her too much. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Without any clear evidence to tie them to the death, which could hardly be called murder without further evidence, that Debocarms might have been suspicious and untrustworthy, but they ended up getting what they wanted, which was Gustave's money. 
And this really pissed off the magistrate. <laughs> so they took the case to the country's best chemist, a man by the name of Jean Chervestas. And he was actually also very mad and took it very personally that they were going to get away with this. And I think it must have just been like a last straw type deal after the morphine thing, the 1847 case. Who knows how many cases they were like, I wish we could do something about this. Yeah, and he's like, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. This is my life's mission now. So he took three months testing and retesting an extract of nicotine alkaloid from preserved tissue. And in the end, he came up with the Stoss Auto Method, which is a way of extracting basic drugs from preserved tissue. And this is actually very similar to the basic extraction I used when I worked at the coroner's office. Oh, so he was a big deal. He, he made some waves. He did. And the Comte de Bocame was found guilty and executed by guillotine on July 19th, 1851. The Countess was acquitted because she claimed that she only helped her husband out of fear of him. So mm. she got to live because she was a liar. <laughs> All right. So you said that he was stockpiling tobacco leaves for a while, and that's what he was making his concentrates out of. Mm -hmm. So are tobacco leaves the only source of nicotine? So nicotine has been found in other nightshade plants because tobacco is part of the nightshade family. So it has been found in potatoes, eggplants, and tomatoes, which I find really funny because of that tobacco episode from The Simpsons. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> that makes like a lot more sense now and is funny on a different <laughs> level now. Yeah. And it's been studied in plants that shouldn't have even trace amounts of nicotine like peppermint. And they took these plants and they grew them so that they were like, okay, there's nicotine in the soil. We think that it will be taken up by the plant. And then they found that that was actually true, was that mm. plants will take up nicotine from the soil. And so they think that a lot of the nicotine that is found in plants where it shouldn't be or it's in increased amounts is probably because tobacco plants were either planted there and then died or there was nicotine in the soil from having grown tobacco plants there. And this isn't super important in terms of human health. It's just important in terms of agriculture because nicotine, mm -hmm. tobacco plants in general, are really, really hard on the soil. And mm. so you do want to rotate your plants so that you're not just decimating the soil. I mean, monocultures in general are not very good. Tobacco plants in general are very hard on the soil, but mm. they did find that the increased nicotine does have an effect on a plant. And it's kind of like, okay, well, is it going to keep the plants that we keep there now from growing? What are the effects mm. on growing plants where nicotine is present? But it's not a human health issue. And with the potatoes, eggplants, and tomatoes, though, in the nightshade family, that mm -hmm. was naturally occurring in those plants? It's a very, very small amount is what okay. I understand. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that's fine. It's probably, it's still increased in those plants if they're growing where nicotine sure. was, but... Yeah, but on not, their own, they would have a little bit. A little bit is what I've found. Yeah, okay. and I mean, that could just be because we've really messed with agriculture. And so once we started looking into it, it was there. But it just seems like because they're part of the nightshade family, they just have a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. And most of our nicotine comes primarily from a plant called Nicotiana tobacco plants, which are members of the nightshade family, and they grow in warm, tropical, and subtropical places. They were first known to be grown in Northern America, and then it spread with European interest in tobacco during the 1500s, so that now roughly 9.8 million acres around the globe are dedicated to growing tobacco plants. Whoa. There's also a tree in the genus called Nicotiana glauca, which grows 25 feet tall in areas like California and the southwestern U.S. Huh, interesting. 
Agriculture is always important to mention, I think, when we talk about dangerous plants because the people who handle these plants are at risk. And so one of the most common forms of nicotine poisoning is during harvest. And so people who harvest tobacco plants are actually at pretty high risk of nicotine and have really high nicotine tolerance as if they were smokers because they're just exposed to it all the time. Wow. And this type of nicotine toxicity is known as grain tobacco sickness. It was first reported in 1970 among tobacco workers in Florida. During a two-month period in 1992 in Kentucky, the CDC estimated that 10 per 1,000 workers in a five-county area in Kentucky had green tobacco sickness. Are the symptoms of the green tobacco sickness the same as nicotine poisoning? They are, and it's the acute nicotine poisoning, not just nauseous and vomiting, but that acute type. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to get it because dew from the tobacco leaves can get on your skin because it's so easily transferred transdermally. Oh, yeah. No, that's, oh, that's a great point. So these are all transdermal. Another overall prevalence estimated among seasonal and migrant farm workers that green tobacco sickness could be as high as 25 to 40% of workers. So a lot of people in this industry are at risk of nicotine poisoning, you know, and it's one of those things that we don't even really consider as being that acutely poisonous because it's so commonplace. Yeah, no, I had no idea. Per usual, these are all very eye-opening experiences here on the (laughs) podcast for me. So I guess a good question to kind of sum it up would be, if you get nicotine poisoning, is there an antidote? There's not, unfortunately. Oh. There's no specific antidote. If you end up with seizure activity, they can give you benzodiazepines. If you end up with hypotension, you can be treated with fluids, you know, which is probably all they were doing for Linda when she was in the hospital, Mm -hmm. was just giving her fluids and monitoring her. Atropine can be used for if you have a slowed heart rate, but it's just one of those things where they just have to get it out of your system. And if you end up with respiratory failure, you might have to be intubated or ventilated. It sucks that it's, it's so common. It's common among farmers and migrant workers, but there's no cure for it. Yeah, there's no antidote. And as we learned from Linda's case, it acts so quickly. So quickly, yeah. Like, there is not a lot of wiggle room there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this has been a journey. I am going to think about this every time I consume nicotine. But what I really loved about all of your research on this one was we covered a pretty wide range. Like, we got to go over a semi-modern... Mm-hmm. case that went cold and then was later solved in a lot of our listeners' lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. And and then go way back in time when people were even crafty with it back then. And the two things that I never thought I'd hear together in a sentence were ground beef nicotine poisoning. <laughs> so there's that. I'm glad that nobody died then. Me too. Yeah, this has been a wild ride with this one. (laughs) I really didn't know what to expect. This one was really interesting to research. So friendly reminder, murdering people is not cool. Don't do it. Poisoning is not cool. Including yourself. Try to quit smoking, and if you are not smoking, don't do it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com. 
Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. Thank you.